We're going to have a look um, at Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. We had a look at the first part of Revelation chapter 20 last week, and so we come to the second part of chapter 20 today. And it's possibly quite a well-known passage in the book of Revelation, although not particularly a comfortable one. John writes this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they'd done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And this is God's word. I don't know how many of you have watched the movie The Truman Show with Jim Carrey. It's a very clever film that tells the story of Truman Burbank, who is completely unaware of the fact that he has spent his entire life living on a huge film set where he is the star of a reality television series. And at one point, Truman meets a lady called Lauren, who actually wishes to tell him the truth about his life. And when he meets her, he notices that she's wearing a pin, a badge. It's actually a badge that promotes the Truman show in the real world. And the badge simply says, how's it going to end? And Truman notices And he says to Lauren, I like your pin, I was wondering that myself. And it's a very ironic moment in the film because actually in meeting Lauren, Truman's entire life is actually going to end very differently. How's it going to end? It's a good question. Perhaps as we look at our world this morning, we too are tempted to ask the question, how is it going to end? Well, in this passage of Scripture from the book of Revelation, we read how it is going to end, not just on a cosmic level now, but also how it is going to end personally on an individual level for you and for me. In the words of the book of Hebrews, it is appointed unto every person once to die and after that to face judgment. And today we look at the judgment of God If you've been following this series through Revelation, you will know that the throne of God is one of the great pictures in the book of Revelation. John mentions God's throne on the very first page, four verses into the book. And the word throne is used another 46 times in the book of Revelation. The word throne is used more times in the book of Revelation than anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, it's used more times than in the rest of the New Testament put together. It is the great image in the book. And now here at the end of the book, at the very end of history, we read that at Christ's return, earth and heaven flee away and all that is left at the very center of everything is the throne of God and he who is seated on it. 
Bible commentators spend a lot of time arguing about whether it is God who is sat on this throne or whether it is Jesus who is sat on the throne. Uh, the simple answer to that is yes. <laughs> Jesus is God. It's so interesting that Jewish people uh, steeped in the Old Testament scriptures knew that God alone was the judge of all the earth. So that when Jesus came to earth and started to say things like, all human beings will one day stand before me, as he does in that parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew chapter 25, the penny begins to drop and the disciples realize that Jesus is claiming to be God that he, in fact, is God. The idea of Jesus judging is a very clear reference to his deity. Well, we read how at the end of time, at Jesus' return, every single person who has ever lived will be gathered around the throne of God. In fact, John gives a very vivid picture to show this all-inclusive nature of the judgment when he says in verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. You know, all those bodies who during the war were heaped together and buried in unmarked graves will now stand as individuals before the throne. Those who were lost at sea and whose bodies were never recovered will be there. There will be no absentees and no exemptions. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The famous and the unknown, celebrities, tyrants, philosophers, opinion shapers, rich and poor, men and women, young and old, kings and queens and presidents and members of parliament and local councillors, beggars, slaves, high court judges, lecturers, fashion designers, news announcers, generals, road sweepers, high school teachers, students, filmmakers, Christians, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, atheists, Buddhists, Confucianists, you and I will all be there. As one writer puts it, in a moment, we will find ourselves contemporaries with everybody who has ever lived. All will be equal as they stand on the level ground before Christ to hear the divine verdict on their lives. And as we stand there, we read that books will be opened. Every few weeks, you have someone who releases a biography of somebody or their own autobiography, in which they record the events of their lives with varying levels of openness and truthfulness. But it's not just the rich or the famous or the infamous who get to write the story of their lives. Right now in heaven, there is a book entitled Andrew Michael Parker. Well, there's probably an entire mini-library. It gets bigger every year. And we read that these books are a record of our deeds. Verse 12. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. But I believe it's even more than just our deeds that are recorded. In Jeremiah chapter 17, we read, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. 
it's not simply our outward actions that God judges, but also the thoughts and the intentions and the motivations behind those actions. Now, on the one hand, the fact that God examines our hearts and our motivations is a real comfort to me. I'm sure that you've been in a situation, as I have, where you've said something or you've done something to somebody else and they've misunderstood, they've misinterpreted, they've felt offended, they've been hurt by me, they haven't understood what my intention was. And it's so comforting to know that God does know the depths of my heart. He knows my thoughts and intentions, and he's not going to take the other person's word for it when they complain to him about me. But actually, for me, the idea of God knowing the depths of my heart is also sobering. As the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. St. Augustine said that the books that are mentioned here in Revelation 20 are symbolic of the divine memory. Everything that has ever been done or said or thought or imagined has been written down in heaven and will be revealed. Every word we've spoken will be shouted out and judged. Every evil thought will be revealed and condemned. Every selfish action will be presented and punished. Or as Jesus put it in Luke 12, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. John is writing the book of Revelation before the digital age, so he speaks of books. I guess there could be some sort of audio-visual record, I'm not sure, but there's definitely an accurate record of my actions, my motives, my intentions, my thoughts, and my words. It's interesting that John writes that the dead are judged according to what they have done. Because you see, it's our actions that reveal what we really believe. Charles Blunden was a French tightrope walker who lived in the 1800s. On a visit to America, he crossed the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And the crowd were understandably amazed and loudly cheered and applauded when he reached the other side. London turned to the crowd and he said to them, I'm now going to go back across the Niagara Falls. This time I'm going to carry somebody on my shoulders. Do you believe I can do that? And all of the crowd said, yes, yes, we believe that you can do that. London turned to the crowd and he said to them, who would like to volunteer to come on my shoulders? And there was absolute silence. Nobody said a word. And after a couple of minutes, one man stood forward. Uh, his name was Harry Colcord. He was Charles Blunden's manager. He climbed onto Blunden's shoulders, and over a period of several minutes, the crowd watched as Blunden carefully inched his way back across the Niagara Falls and brought Harry safely across to the other side. Many people said <laughs> that they believed, but one man, by his actions, demonstrated that he truly did believe. Our actions reveal what is truly in our hearts. We may say that we believe in Jesus and trust in him, but the way in which we live our lives, spend our time, spend our money, reveal whether or not we are truly committed to him or not. 
The Apostle James says in James chapter 2 that without deeds, faith is dead. He says, I will show you my faith by what I do. Being judged according to what we've done, as recorded in the books, is not salvation by works. On this day, God does not weigh up all of our deeds and see whether our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. That's not the basis on which we enter eternity. The books are a record of our lives, but our eternal destinies are determined by something else. Have a look at the central sentence of verse 12. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. We've come across this book a couple of times in our study already, all the way back in chapter 3, in Jesus' letter to the church at Sardis. He said, the one who overcomes will be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. In chapter 13, we read that the inhabitants of the earth who worship the beast are all those whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain. And in chapter 17, John goes further and he speaks about the inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world. Now, we've dealt with enough difficult subjects in the book of Revelation without getting into the difficult subject of predestination. But just to say that this idea of our names being written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world simply mean that in those dark times, when I wonder whether I am truly a believer, I remind myself that my salvation doesn't rest on my flimsy choice of God but rather on his strong, eternal choice of me. And if this morning you're a Christian and you're sat there worried that your name isn't written in heaven, your worry is the surest sign that it is written in heaven. Because if it wasn't written there, you wouldn't be worried about your salvation. Our concern about our relationship with Christ is a good indication that we have a relationship with him to begin with. But it's the presence or the absence of our name in the Lamb's book of life that determines our eternal destiny. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Our world winks at hell. In our popular culture, it's seen as a place where you hang out with your bad friends and indulge in all sorts of vices, a place where naughty pleasures can be enjoyed, where all restraints can be removed and every appetite indulged. You sit at a bar in the flames with your friends and reminisce about the good old days back on earth. But the reality of hell is far more awful than that. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus described hell as the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And in the previous two chapters of Revelation, we've read about the beast and the false prophet and Satan being hurled into the lake of fire. In other words, hell was never intended for human beings, and it is a place in which the devil is punished for eternity, not a place over which he reigns. But also, it is a place in which all those whose names are not written in God's book are thrown. Where else are they to go? 
And as we've seen in previous sermons, hell is not full of repentant sinners longing to get out, but full of people who have opposed God and continue to oppose him in unrepentant rebellion. But worst of all, hell is a place where you are cut off from God, the God who loves you, the God who created you, the God who carefully fashioned you, who knit you together in your mother's womb, who gave you your nose and your eyebrows and your ability to read and your sense of humor. More than that, the God who, when you sinned, when you pushed him out of your life and thereby separated yourself from him, didn't leave you in that state. Instead, came down, way down, in the person of his son, Jesus. And he lived the perfect life I should have lived. And he died the death for sin that I deserved to die. And he offers me his perfect life as a gift. He's my creator, my sustainer, my savior. And so in the words of Hebrews chapter 2, how then shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I can think of nothing worse than being cut off from a God who designed me and loves me and saved me and being left with myself for eternity. I said we were only going to look at five verses this morning, but let's read on a little bit further in the book of Revelation. We're going to come to these verses again next time, but it's worth reading these familiar verses directly after we've read the passage that we've just looked at about God's judgment, because these verses give another perspective on what we've just read. Let's have a look from chapter 21. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To anyone who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cast from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Let me draw your attention real quick to three things in these verses that I think shed light on the passage that we've been considering so far. Firstly, notice the little phrase in verse 6, it is done. This isn't the same phrase that we have in the gospel accounts. Remember Jesus on the cross shouting out, Tetelestai, it is finished. It's not the same Greek phrase, but I wonder if there is perhaps a reference to the cross here. That God's words, it is done, 
at the very end of time, echoed Jesus' words, it is finished from the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus experienced hell. He experienced darkness. He experienced separation from God so that you and I need never experience hell. Everything that is needed to bring you and me to God has been done, and there is no need for anyone to go to hell. In the words of C.S. Lewis, all that are in hell choose it. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. As one pastor puts it, we either meet Jesus at the throne as our judge or we meet him at the cross as our savior. Linked to that, notice the invitation in verse 6. To anyone who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. The nature of our text and of the sermon today is not a threat It's an invitation. Yes, the reality of how it's going to end, the eternal realities of heaven and hell are clearly described in these verses, but at the heart of this passage, at the heart of the gospel, there is an invitation. We look up at the cross and we see Jesus hanging there with his arms outstretched, saying to us, in effect, come home. Everything necessary for you and me to come has been done already. We don't have to do anything. We only have to be thirsty. As one pastor points out, the only thing that you can contribute to your salvation is your sinfulness. Everything else has been done. And then notice thirdly here the emphasis on relationship. Verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and women. And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Or verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God and he will be my son. I notice that the New International Version, the updated version, translates this, they will be my children. It's always difficult. They're trying to be inclusive. But actually the Bible isn't sexist. I remember hearing about a lady from South Korea who became a Christian. And when she read in the New Testament that she was one of God's sons, she was overjoyed. Because in her culture, boys were everything and girls were nothing. And sons always inherited, whereas girls never received anything. For this lady to be called a son changed her entire outlook on life. A son who, as Jesus promises here, will inherit all of this. Uh, That was a bit of a detour. But uh, notice the highly relational element in these verses. God wants to be with us. God wants to be as close as possible to us. And the fundamental question for all of us is this. Do I want to be with him? In one sense, Christianity has nothing whatsoever to do with coming to church or giving to the church or being good. It's about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And if I choose to spend this life getting to know the God who has created and saved me, accepting his free offer of salvation, learning about him through regularly reading his word, speaking to him in prayer, 
practicing his presence throughout the day, worshiping him, serving him, loving his people, then that relationship continues on into eternity, beyond the curtain, when I see him face to face. And if, on the other hand, I continually push God out of my life, if I ignore the fact that he is my creator and savior, if I, if I live out my life in his world without any reference to him, then that chosen separation continues on into eternity. And as we draw to a close, let's go back to Revelation chapter 20. What does the Andrew Michael Parker book look like? Well, the Canadian pastor, Daryl Johnson, suggests that if we are those who know and love Jesus, then our books look incredibly messy. He writes this, Our books contain a full accounting. God has not missed anything. It's all there, line after line, entry after entry, failure to trust Jesus after failure to trust Jesus, inappropriate way of dealing with inner pain after inappropriate way of dealing with inner pain. But good news Everything that we have confessed has been erased, crossed over, crossed out. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. On every page, sin after sin, on every page, confession after confession, and on every page, erasure after erasure, pages stamped with words like forgiven, pardoned, cancelled. It's a very messy book because of the strange eraser the judge uses. It leaves a red mark on each line, red because of the blood that flows from the eraser. The book on me has lots of bloodstains on it. There's one other thing for us to consider as we go out into this new week and write another chapter of our autobiography. If every bad action and thought and word gets recorded, then so too does every good action and word and thought, every deed done in faith, every thought done and every word spoken in dependence on God's Holy Spirit. Jesus said that not even a cup of water given in his name would go unnoticed. We've looked at the negative side of this this morning, but the positive side is that you and I get to write a story that brings pleasure to God. Just like you curl up with a, a really good novel that excites you, our lives can bring pleasure to God. We get to build for God's kingdom. And so as we go out into this new week, let's do so in the light of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, we make it our goal to please him. Whether we're at home in the body, alive, or away from it in that context. And then he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. I once heard Charles Swindoll read a poem that captures something of what we've seen today. And with this we'll close. He came to my desk with a quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new page for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. I took his page all soiled and spotted. 
and I gave him a new one, all unspotted. And into his tired heart I smiled. Do better now, my child. I came to the throne with a trembling lip. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. He took my days, my years, all soiled and blotted, and gave me new ones, all unspotted. And into my tired heart he cried, You do better now, my child. Let's pray together.